Good afternoon. My name is Martha Gill. I'm with Friends of the Library. India Kincannon, who is a school board member and former chair of that board, is going to review and lead our discussion in How Children Succeed, Grit, Curiosity, and the Hidden Power of Character by Paul Tuff. Ms. Kincannon. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate being invited by the Friends of the Library, and uh, you did give me the book, so I've been meaning to buy it, so I'm, I'm glad uh, to have the gift uh, and excuse to read it in a very close way. As a member of the school board, I usually have to compete with eight other very chatty people for talking time, so uh, this is a rare treat for me <laughs> to get sole access to the microphone, but... Um, I have been on the school board uh, for nine years. I also have two kids who are part of Knox County Schools, now in fifth and seventh grade. And over the last nine years as a school board member, I'm pleased to say I've seen a lot of progress in our public schools. And in particular, I think we've raised the expectations and level of rigor, both for our teachers and students, quite a bit. And and that has been really good for our community um, but, but yet we still have huge obstacles that remain, and that was one of the reasons I was excited to read this book, because some of the o- obstacles that I see as the biggest ones are not what you read about in the media so much. I mean, in the media you hear that the focus is on teacher quality, IQ, you know, just kids aren't smart enough, uh, or school facilities, technology, that sort of thing. Those are all challenges, and I don't mean to diminish them, but to me some of the biggest problems uh, are related to what I've seen in classrooms when I volunteer in a classroom once a week at a different school in my district. And there are a lot of kids who are plenty smart, but they are disengaged and are not motivated at all. And so what I was hoping to get out of this book, and I did get some out of this book, is what motivates kids. What's the difference if you have, if you have the intellectual abilities? Why is it that some kids succeed and some don't? And what I learned from this book, and the best contribution this book makes, is that uh, character matters, and, we'll, and I'll talk more about that, and that character is malleable. You can cultivate it, and most importantly, we know how. There's a bunch of research that I'm going to share with you. There's scientific research about what helps build character traits, and we know how to do it, and we, we can debate who should deliver that, you know, parents, faith-based organizations, schools, nonprofits, but we shouldn't be debating whether to do it or that it can be done, but just how and with what means. So the first thing, as I mentioned, is that grit which is the term I'm going to use that he uses for general character traits. Grit is a better predictor of life success than almost anything else, and it's a a better predictor of life success than IQ, and it's malleable. So what is grit? He defines grit as persistence, self-control, curiosity, conscientiousness, self-confidence. These are all non-cognitive traits and skills that sometimes are also called character. And he distinguishes between sort of performance-based character, like things that you can change behavior-wise, and um, morality-based character. And both are important, you know, integrity, honesty, ethics. And and those are vital, too. But the traits he's talking about that are... um, were measurable elements to children's success were those performance-based character traits, persistence. Conscientiousness is is a really big one. So if these are so important... How do you get grit? How do you build character in kids? I think he makes a couple good points about that. First, it's not innate. It's not 
uh, genetic trait, whether you have these things or not. It's not luck, and it's not a choice. I mean, sometimes I, as a parent and I see teachers sometimes get really frustrated. They want kids to make good choices, and we talk about it in that framework. But sometimes those things, impulse control, self-regulation, those are things that are not choices. Sometimes uh, these traits are molded in measurable and predictable ways, and they're, they're manifest in the brain chemistry. A lot is dependent on those early, early years of childhood, but yet it's not too late to develop grit and those other characteristics in the later years of youth, too. So what makes for the good environment? These are things that are sort of common sense, but he spells it out. A nurturing, safe, secure relationships, especially with your primary caregiver, whether it's a parent or foster parent or grandparent, but that nurturing, kind relationship where the person is attuned to the child's emotional state. Um, minimizing stress and trauma. Again and again, we talk about how poverty, uh, you know, kids on free and reduced lunch, that's a proxy for being at risk. But it's not income that makes a child at risk. It's not what their family earns. It's the, it's the stress that is often but not always associated with poverty, the uh, day-to-day chaos that can happen in a child's life when moving households and changing partners and that sort of thing. So the stress and trauma of, of having to make decisions about, you know, whether to pay your utility bill or buy the groceries, all, all those things, can, it's not poverty alone that causes it. It's the stress associated with it. But the nurturing, which can be free, <laughs> the nurturing emotional attachment that a caregiver can provide can overcome all of that stress. And, and he says that you know, parents are the best vehicle for that, but also it can come from other relatives, social workers, teachers, coaches, clergy, neighbors. It's, it's, uh, parents are the easiest in many cases, but not always the only source of this kind of nurturing. So then the heart of the book gets into the research, and, and I wanted to go over that real quickly because I thought it was very compelling. He's a really good writer, Paul Tuff. He's a college dropout himself, uh, so I thought that was sort of interesting. He had very few risk factors but chose to drop out and seek another another path and obviously has succeeded because of other factors than, than ability to stay in school. But um, his ability to translate all this scientific research into lay terms I thought was very helpful. So one of the first studies he talked about was a, a scientist named James Heckman, I think, who was interested in kids who earned a GED. And the GED, General Equivalency Diploma, is supposed to be equivalent to a high school diploma. And, and it is uh, on terms of academics and IQ, or it is for the most part. That was sort of a stipulated. But when he compared kids who earned GEDs versus kids who earn, earned high school diplomas, so those kids had roughly equivalent cognitive skills or IQ or however you want to. But when he compared their life outcomes, uh, the GED earners had much worse life outcomes than the kids who had persevered and earned their high school diploma. And by life outcomes, I mean earnings and stable relationships, staying out of jail, big lifetime things that measure sort of happiness and stability and, um, you know, functioning. So GED and high school diploma earners might have very similar IQs, and some GED earners might have, you know, very high IQs, but for some reason they don't have those 
character traits that allow them to persevere. And sometimes, and, and I thought this was a good point, uh, the grit allows someone to persevere even in, in an activity they think is super boring or not worth it. And, and we all know that sometimes, hopefully not very often, sometimes school is not that engaging. And yet, if, if you have those grit, gritty characteristics, you're like, okay, well, I'm not super excited about the lesson we're learning today, but I'm conscientious and I know that filling in the dots on the standardized test is something that's important overall and I'm going to try my hardest. That uh, takes a, a lot of grit, I think, sometimes more, more than others. And, but he's saying that um, IQ is not nearly as important as those characteristics. So another thing that we've probably all heard of is the Perry Pre-K model project in Michigan, uh, where kids were given exceptionally high-quality pre-K experiences from an early age, and then there was a corresponding group of kids with similar um, income and parents' educational attainment who did not get that. And they watched these kids. They, they gave them the, the intervention, the high-quality pre-K, and then they watched the kids. And, and this is what I, I Representative Dunn, I saw uh, him earlier, and I invited him to come. He said he was going to try, but I don't see him here, but I was going to make this point to him is that that Perry pre-K project, the the kids who got the high-quality pre-K started off kindergarten, they were much better. They They were ready to learn. They knew their ABCs. They knew how to behave in school and have some self-control. That's one thing kindergarten teachers talk about is not that kids don't know. I think I said this, not that kids don't know their ABCs, but they just can't manage their own, um, you know, don't have that, those self-behavior controls. But the Perry Pre-K Project, those academic gains that separated the pre-K kids from the others, those diminished and were negligible by third grade. So then people might conclude it's not worth it. What's the point if if you invest all this money? Because it's expensive. It's not worth it. But they followed those kids for another 25, 30 years. I don't know. They're probably in their 40s now. And, again, it's those life outcomes. Because ultimately we don't necessarily care whether kids get good grades or whether they score well on certain tests, but we want them to have high-quality life and be productive members of society. And those peri-pre-K kids had better life outcomes, again, in those same factors, able to keep a job, have higher earnings, more likely to be married, less likely to have incarceration records and that sort of thing. So why is poverty associated with lack of grit? Adverse childhood experiences, ACE, leads to negative adult outcomes, instability, and the shifting homes, abuse, all these things that uh, some kids' experiences in high-poverty homes lead to stress, which I won't try to explain in great detail, but these studies go down into the cellular, molecular effect of stress have permanent impact on the cells of your body and and your brain. And particularly when you're young, uh, your brain is very elastic. And he says in some kids' lives, it's like the fire alarm is going off all the time. And so your brain, it's, uh, we have that um, survival fight or flee and, you know, influx of hormones and other chemicals. And, and that helps us. That helps us survive if uh, a bear is attacking us. But if we're having those alarms go off all the time, it, it makes people not have that impulse control and that ability to sometimes uh, regulate yourself. And so it's a real chemical reaction. That's why I think it's important to not always couch it in, you know, Johnny, you need to make better choices. You know, sometimes 
it's harder for some kids to make better choices than others. And, and um, it's due to these highly volatile home lives that they have, which, which can have these permanent chemical reactions. Another great study he talked about, I'll call the mama rat story. I thought that was a really interesting one. These, these uh, scientists, I think, um, in Canada wanted to understand the effect of the environment on children and success. So they, they, rats are the proxy, and I know rats aren't the same as humans, but what they found was that they, they had in, you know, baby rats, and they exposed it to them to a stressful experience, like just even being picked up by a lab technician and handled and then put down. That's pretty stressful. And then for the control group, they were just put down and went back to their ways. But for the experimental group, uh, they were given... Oh, no, the, here's what it was. They that some of them were back with the mother, the mama rat, who was high, highly affectionate and, and did a lot of licking and grooming with these baby rats right after the stressful experience. And then the other mama rats were a little more detached. They didn't do the licking and grooming. And um, what they found was that the baby rats who had the high licking and grooming mama rats performed much better on later activities, like they were more curious, they were more open, they had, you know, all the, you know, they were better physically, mentally, I mean, I don't know if they can measure the rat's happiness, but they had, uh, they were longer lives, healthier lives, and um, it was all due to, they, and and they went in and, um, and isolated like a DNA impact that those infant rats, because of the, they had stress, and then the immediate licking and grooming alleviated the stress. So you can have a child who's, you know, seen horrible war traumas or had horrible abuse, but if they get that intervention of the human equivalent of of licking and grooming, that is an intervention that works. He goes on to talk about some human uh, experiments, isn't the right word, but studies where they show that um, one word for it is attachment parenting, where you know, kid A who lives in a traumatic environment and kid B who lives in a traumatic environment, if one of them has a parent who's really attuned to their emotional emotional life and, and is the equivalent of that high licking and grooming, especially immediately after a stressful thing, the kids have really different outcomes. You can see it all the time in our schools. You know, my kids go to Beaumont, and there are a lot of kids there from Western Heights, one of our one of our public housing projects, and there's some crime there, there's some volatility, but some of the kids are, like, knocking it out of the park academically, and they're super, you know, and so their environment, at least their physical environment, is very similar, and their income is obviously very similar, but something is different about what's going on in their family that's getting really different outcomes. And attachment parenting, at least in my mind, has this sort of hippie connotations, like you have to wear your baby in a sling and all that. And, and um, I did that, and I, was, I enjoyed that and all that, but, but it's not what they mean. It's, what they mean is something as simple as when you play a game of cards with your kid, being like aware of their reaction and, you know, what happens when they win, what happens when they lose, are they upset after coming home from school or having a disagreement with a friend. Like, it doesn't mean um, even necessarily a lot of physical contact, although particularly for, for infants and babies, they, they say that you just can't overdo, overdo that level of, of physical nurturing, too. But it doesn't, you know, attachment parenting um, is for everybody. And it's also, he, he made it sound like, 
It's not something that necessarily requires a lot of special training or, or unusual steps, but it does sometimes require more explicit training for some people than others, especially if they never experienced that kind of parenting themselves. So now I want to talk a little bit about interventions. Family interventions are the most helpful. We can only do so much through schools, but community, they've had places where uh, 10 home visits, there's a lot of uh, resources for parents of newborn children, and not maybe as much as we need, but 10 home visits to new parents to train in responding to infants in a manner that's attentive, warm, and calm. They say that makes just a huge difference. And um, this one study showed that it's more important than training on nutrition, more important than training on smoking cessation, or even the uh, a really popular idea right now is the uh, vocabulary growth, trying to get people to increase, you know, talk to their kids more. That's, all those things are important. It's good not to smoke around kids and to talk to them and improve their vocabulary and feed them nutritious food. But they say that, um, you know, just cultivating this idea of, of attentiveness and nurturing and calmness uh, and that emotional thing it, with just 10 visits made a big, big difference and was more important than any of those other things. The other thing, uh, as far as community interventions, things that are beyond the resources of most families and certainly schools is you know, mental health counseling, uh, trauma counseling, anger management. You know, mental health is a very under-addressed under need in, in our community as well as many others. And just the basics of you know, food, clothing, shelter, um, the school interventions, uh, some things that we've done in Knox County, and again, I think these are all really valuable programs. We just haven't been able to scale them up. We have a birth decay program, which has had those home visits to parents, but there are two problems. One is, you know, one time we had budget cuts and we went, say, from 10 counselors to five for the whole county. Don't quote me on the exact number. I just remember we had to cut and even even when it was at its full funding level, it wasn't nearly enough. And so that birth decay program is also challenged because when you only have so many counselors or home visitors, how do you allocate it? How do you get the people who need it the most to actually take it up and, and use it? And that is a challenge as well. Um, Pre-K, we've added more pre-K in recent years thanks to state funding for pre-K. From my understanding, every year... We have to be grateful that it doesn't get cut rather than consider you know, adding on. And, and yet study after study, including this book, shows that it's the best money we can spend. Like for you know, every dollar you spend on early childhood education, you save 10 for later education, not to mention issues with you know, social welfare and other spending. Um, AVID is a program that is less well-known than some of the others. But I think it, it, ta- it talked about really similar programs in the book. AVID is, uh, I think we started in middle school, and it's an explicit, explicitly targeted for kids who seem to be underperforming. Like they have IQs that are plenty sufficient to do well in our schools, but they're not, or they're only getting C's and their aspirations are 
they don't match what their abilities are. So AVID is a program that especially identifies kids for whom going to college, they'd be the first in their family to go to college, where they don't necessarily have that tradition in their family or the wherewithal to deal with the application process. And it has explicit study skills, you know, teaches kids things that sometimes you think they know, but but they don't. And some kids can absorb it and figure it out on their own, but some kids really benefit from that explicit, how, how, do you, how to read a book critically, not just for fun, how to take notes. And a lot of it sometimes is organizational skills, really helping kids keep these big binders. I mean, there's a big transition from elementary to middle where you have all these different teachers and assignments and Sometimes if you help kids with it, it's like, this is how you do this. Like, oh, I didn't know that, and and give them that support. And so AVID, I'm a big fan of that. Um, Project GRAD is a program in our 14 urban schools that feed into Fulton and Austin East. And it used to be academics and sort of the social mentoring stuff. And now um, now that Knox County Schools has caught up more on the academic side and given more, I think, uh, rigorous and high expectations and, and so forth. Project Grad is focusing on the college access and the social services side. Um, Knox Achieves is a program where you can mentor. Uh, we match people in the community to high school students who need help navigating the college application process. We have, you know, the, our guidance counselors, first of all, they have a lot to do besides just college application processes. They're, they've got to help kids chart a course through high school so they're ready to go to college and help them if they're struggling and all that. But usually their caseload, they, they have a, you know, three or 400 students per counselor. It varies, something pretty high. So that one-to-one mentoring can really help a lot, especially there are a lot of kids who are eligible for all kinds of financial aid and they don't know how to apply for it. They don't even know they're eligible. And, and the Last Knox County Schools things I, I wanted to mention, which I think is one of our most important, and I see Dr. Kronick is here, is our, our community schools initiative, which has been going on for several years at Pont Gap and other schools. It's gone in more fits and starts at, in Skip and, and Sarah Moore Green. But now we've recently expanded. Well, there were four schools last year. Now there's going to be seven or eight? Seven? And the community schools model is... All these things that people are talking about as far as poverty, schools aren't equipped to deal with them. Teachers are trained to teach, and and they know a lot about how to engage kids on those academic stuff, but we don't have the resources for food, clothing, shelter, health care, mental health care, eyeglasses, you know, that sort of thing. And yet that's where the kids are, and it's really hard to get them to go to other places. So with the idea that that's where the kids are and they need more services than just academic, it's bringing the services to them and and also from a school board member's perspective, bringing in the community partners to pay for those services like Helen Ross McNabb or like UT or like the other hospitals um, and healthcare providers because there's money there for people who might need those services, but not in the school budget. <laughs> we, we don't have nearly as much as we're tight just getting the academic side stuff done. So uh, community schools, I'm really pleased with that, with that level of things. So one, one last thing before I just take a couple questions is the, the context of this. I, I think this is an interesting, um, the fact that he thinks character traits are more important than IQ and also that it's malleable is, a, is a, I think, a direct response to some of the academic studies like um, 
Charles Murray and the bell curve and real education. He's what some people would call a cognitive determinist, and he's come out with these ideas that your IQ is your destiny, and if if it's low, you know, then you shouldn't even go to college, you know, and you should we that that we engage in educational romanticism, which asks too much from students at the bottom of the intellectual pile, asks the wrong things from those in the middle, and asks too little from those at the top. You know, I I think that uh, I sort of disagree with Charles Murray's analysis. You know, I sort of disagree instinctively, but he disagrees and has some science uh, to back it up. So I, I thought that was helpful. Also, William Bowen, a former president of Princeton, along with some of his colleagues, wrote a book that some of you might know called Crossing the Finish Line. Why are so many kids dropping out of college? And he, again, talks about how some of the gatekeeping to college is so much based on SAT or ACT when they did a lot of analysis showing that GPA um, is the best predictor of college success. And why is that? Because SAT, ACT is more like measures, A, was your high school good? You know, what did you get to take? Did you even have these classes? And B, IQ. But GPA measures, can you take a class and finish it? Can you complete the assignment? Do you have perseverance, persistence? So I thought that was interesting. And also the the context of the war on poverty. A lot of people think that many of the initiatives on the war on poverty didn't work, or they only worked part of the way. Things might be worse without them, but there's still a lot of poverty. And so right now, it seems like a lot of policymakers are trying to solve poverty through schools. And I think that there's a role for that there, but, you know, there's this idea that, you know, kids can't perform well because of poverty, or we've got to fix schools and poverty is not an excuse. And I think um, most people I talk to think we need to address both and make our schools as strong as possible while also trying to address some of the obstacles that poverty can cause to education. So I will stop there and try to entertain some questions and um, would love to hear your thoughts if any of you have read the book or have thoughts on what you heard about the book. This book sounds a lot deeper than the question, but I've heard a lot about how to praise a child and not praising them for the product, but praising them for the work it took to get to that product. Would you think that fits in with this? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, there's a big part of this book where he compares kids at KIPP, the Knowledge is Power program, like charter school for very low-income, at-risk kids, with Riverdale Prep School, like a super fancy prep school uh, outside of New York, the kids at Riverdale, who have every advantage money can buy, they lack grit. And it's not, it's not because of lack of money, but it's because their parents are scared to let them fail. And he talks a lot about how, um, you know, one way to measure success is how do you manage failure? Because we're all inevitably going to fail or fall down in some manner. And so we need to know that that's not the end of the world. That's not the end. You don't just give up that, how to respond to that. So, yeah, he talks explicitly about... You know, when you say, oh, you're so smart to your kid after getting an A, then that means if they don't get an A the next time, they're not smart? No, it just means that they maybe studied better the first time or maybe they just didn't, you know. So, yeah, praising effort, not outcomes, is is really important. Speaking of um, pre-K, I want to give a shameless plug for Imagination Library as one of the early interventions. Um, We did a study of Imagination Library through the school system and found that the kids 
who were in Imagination Library, we looked at them as they entered kindergarten at the pre-literacy skills, and they scored significantly higher than their non-Imagination Library peers. But then we looked at them again at third grade, and those skills held, even at the third grade level, three years after they'd Hmm. been in Imagination Library, at a significant level. So that's really exciting. It says... You know, and all they did was receive the books. You know, we didn't insist that anybody read them, but obviously they're reading them. So, you know, just getting the books in the mail made a huge difference in their lives. Yeah, I I would say as a parent of two kids who are in that program, every time it comes in the mail, not only is it a boon to just literacy and love of reading, but, you know, your kid comes and sits with you and you're like, read this, Mommy, and you have that together time too, which I think this book would say is almost as important, if not more, than just the reading process itself, just sitting on, you know, so. That, I was yeah. just going to say that very thing, um, just to accent that you're, especially with the young child, you're not necessarily teaching them to read. They may get gain word familiarity and sound familiarity and connection with pictures, but you're really developing a relationship in a way that's a strong bond and supportive for that child and supports this routine of of book reading and and learning through that way. So it is, it's a great way. And I think one of the things that um, we don't see enough in early childhood education is the parental involvement Mm -hmm. and programs that, that expect it or, or are able to expect it and get it to happen Mm -hmm. in, in the school system, as well as with the child and uh, celebrating successes and working together to accomplish goals. I thought the birth decay program uh, was really good, but I mean, some people really object to it being sort of like the nanny state. We shouldn't have to teach parents how to be parents. They should just magically know. But I mean, how many new parents do you know who wish, you know, they came home from the hospital with a little more guidance than nothing? I don't think it's a nanny state. I think it's a supportive community. It doesn't have to come from the state. It, you know, it isn't right now. So if it's not coming from the state, so much, certainly, uh, then we have to find other ways to do that through, you know, nonprofits or churches, friendships, neighbors, anything. Grandparents. Grandparents, absolutely. Very important. I was thinking about having seen last night on the news hour a repeat of a segment about Dolly Parton and her imagination library. I'm following up on Mary Palm. And, um, it's, it's a wonderful program. The whole presentation was really quite moving. Astonishing to hear uh, Dolly say that being the book lady, more than all of her other successes, made her feel like an authentic person. But I was thinking, too, about Dolly as being a perfect example of a child born into great poverty. Her father could neither read nor write, but she has, she has grit. Mm, she has optimism. Of course, she has significant talent as well. Uh, but she's a perfect example, it seems to me, mm-hmm. of someone who overcame adverse circumstances but who had that affectionate, supportive family, even though her father mm-hmm. could not read or write. She said he was probably the most intelligent person she had ever known. Wow. One thing that, a question that I uh, had when I started this book was, okay, he says 
character's important and character can be taught, but he doesn't talk a lot about the how-to. I believe it. I believe his message that character can be taught, but there's not a lot of detail on the exact mechanisms. I mean, it talks about some things that don't work or some things that are true, and, and I just wanted to mention a couple of those. One is stereotype expectations, and those can work both ways. If you remind some girls who are about to take a math class, like, don't forget girls sometimes struggle with math, they have, it has the negative effect sometimes. And, and also, you know, the opposite can happen, too. If you remind them of a positive stereotype, it can be good. So I read something that a class that was predominantly African-American right before they took some big test, they said, and don't forget, President Obama is African-American, and he's real smart, or, some, or something. And they didn't do it in a parallel class, and, and there were some results. I mean, your mental state makes a difference, and those stereotypes can be confirming or undermining. The other thing he talked about was that self-control tricks don't work unless kids also know what they want. You know, like, you can have good impulse control, but if you don't have the motivation. And so that, that's a, another tricky thing that he talks about, but it doesn't give a lot of clues on the, on the how to do it. But one thing I thought uh, analysis he talked about was optimis, optimism and pessimism. If you're full-on optimist, sometimes you don't, you're just like, oh, everything's going to work out. I don't even need to study. I'm going to ace this test. That doesn't work so well. And pessimists are, you know, and, and pessimists only think of the bad outcomes. They're like, oh, I could work really hard and, and I might still not do well. And so that's not good. But the successful people, according to the book, are sort of a mixture of that, where they anticipate obstacles or bad outcomes. And then they figure out, well, how can I get around that? Like, it takes me a long time to write an essay on this topic. So I'm going to start two days ahead instead of two hours ahead or, you know, some, something like that. So there are some sort of strategies he talks about, but it's not as detailed as, as we might hope. In reference to this whole thing about grit, you know, how you teach a kid that, my daughter runs 35 miles a week. She's on a cross-country team. I pay for that. I mean, that's not a free service through the county, um, but that's how she gets her grit. Mm-hmm. She's a 4.0 student. We're driving her to another school that she's not zoned to every day so that she can get the coursework she should be getting. My son is also a 4.0 student, but he's an artist. There are 75 kids in a school of 1,000 that get art class. This is Knox County. (laughs) Now, this kid uses art. That's what he does when he comes home from the bus. He goes and he sits And he gets on the internet and he looks up pictures of dinosaurs and he draws them. And they're beautiful. There are 25 kids in the sixth grade getting art this year. Hmm. Okay? I mean, I don't understand this. I will pay double taxes and I'm unemployed. I'm just saying, it's, it's the community can only do so much. If I'm sending my kids to school and they're getting the grit beat out of them. Because yeah. they're not, they're, they're having standardized tests plugged in their Lexile scores, and some of you may know what that is. Both of my kids went down 150 points this year from the <laughs> curriculum. My sixth grader had a 1,200 Lexile, which is college level. My eighth grader had a 1,600, which is almost perfect. They both are down. Okay, they're readers, they read, they do what they're supposed to do, but I, I don't think we're appealing to those kids because we're not giving them the opportunity to explore and to create and to, you know, they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're doing this assignment this way. They're not being told 
just go create something, go do something. So I'm, I'm concerned about who's benefiting from a lot of this testing and whether we're getting rid of the grit and the character that our children, you know, those who are getting it from home and the community and have food and we're, we're not even letting them succeed. How are these right. other kids? Yeah, well, I, I share your frustration, and I, I do think that and sometimes we have too much emphasis on tests. And, and my, in my perfect world, you know, there would be tests, and so we'd be able to measure progress, but it would be almost invisible to the kids. And, and it would be a tool for the teachers to be like, oh, the, you know, she's doing really well on this lesson, but he isn't, so I need to reteach, or the whole class didn't get this. Or, you know, just that's what is called formative assessment. And then, you know, there's a role for some you know, bigger tests maybe every once in a while, but I think it, I think it has gotten a little bit uh, in, out of balance. And then there's so much pressure on teachers and so much pressure on schools that we sometimes do squeeze out not just the arts, but science and social studies. It's like reading and math, reading and math, reading and math. And I have experienced this problem as a parent, and I think that we're in a state of transition right now, that we're moving to this common core thing, which... I actually I think is a is a good thing because I think it 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 helps go from a mile wide to deeper instead of there are fewer things that teachers are required to do so they can go deeper and hopefully encourage more of that critical thinking and creativity and have the time to do it have the time to study a, a play on something and then also do a project and some experiential based learning I mean I think it's a work in progress some teachers are really embracing it and doing it well and some teachers don't really get what what it's about or what they're supposed to be doing it's a it's a culture change i agree that we need to be encouraging the arts and the creativity and finding something that and get whatever engages any individual child i mean they're they're not alone in a school of a thousand i'm sure your kids are uh, you know have similar interests with a huge fraction of their peers and also the other thing is that my kids go into their class and they have a 99 on their tcap Teachers don't want them because they cannot improve them. If they can't show growth, they don't get paid. They can't go from 99 to 100. Doesn't mean you know they want the kids with the 80s and 70s. We do have two measures. I mean, there's both the achievement measure, which which a 99 will look really good, and the value added. Right. And I have some great teachers that mm-hmm. have very low value added scores because mm-hmm. they teach honors classes. Well, there are some schools and teachers who are able to do to move kids even if they're already really high. And, and the, you know, that happens at, even at entire schools. Because you might be 99 percentile in third grade, but to continue being 99th and 4th and 5th and beyond, you, you do have the value added. I can't explain the mechanics of that, but it is possible to have big value-added gains even with kids who started off at a high end. If there's someone here who wants to explain that in greater detail... I'll speak very briefly about it. Uh, I'm, I'm, um, currently, I'm the Family Community Engagement Supervisor for Knox County Schools, but I taught uh, in Oak Ridge for a number of years before uh, I taught uh, for a short term in, in Knox County Schools. And I remember um, a family having that same argument with students in my class because I had all the high-achieving students. I had the high-achieving students and all the lowest achieving students. And so because people were, uh, teachers were intimidated by both groups of students. And we sat down with the parents and this child who was just a remarkable student, uh, he presented the, da- the data with the value added scores that showed, okay, 
not only did your child, who was up here when they first came to, uh, to this classroom, improve dramatically, so did other children who were equal improve dramatically. So there, there is no such thing as topping out. There's always something new to learn. You can't top out in education. There is no topping out. You can, and India, you did, you did a great job by saying, you know, from third grade you can have that you can be in the 99th percentile, but there are things that you can learn in addition to that. And so if you're in the 99th percentile in fourth grade, that doesn't mean there wasn't growth because there was dramatic growth uh, with, with the students in, in my particular class. Of course, I was a great teacher. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting, uh, but when he talked about the KIPP Charter School and the Riverdale Prep School, they had gotten together to talk about some of these issues, and they both started using a grit scale. You know, it was able to measure things like optimism, confidence, ability to make independent, you know, be, how easily deterred are you? The, you know, there's a whole bunch of things. There's even a real short version that I, that you could take online. I did, I did it last night and, uh, you know, it's self, self done. But I, I thought that, I thought that was an interesting idea. And at the KIPP school, it became integrated and an important part. And there's something to share with parents in particular. Like, are your kids doing well academically, but they have no resilience. You know, the, if they get a, a low grade on a quiz, they're devastated and they, you know, whatever. And, and, um, they had to, unfold it a little more carefully at the Riverdale School because people, they weren't as confident that a grid scale was relevant or important, or, or it would seem like a criticism to the parents, which it can, it can be construed that way, but we need that feedback, and I, I think you're totally right that it's real easy to get back into you know, what's the percentile, what's the this and that, but I wonder if we should consider some kind of... Uh, I mean, I, I almost hate to have another test or, you know, try putting a number on it. But, but that is one strength of this book is they do sort of put some numbers on these things that aren't normally measured or evaluated but, but are as important, if not more, than what's your reading level. Kids, a lot of kids love to play video games, and they fail all the time. They're like, I, can't, I got to level two, but I can't pass level two. But they don't give up. They don't even see it as a failure. They say, what, you know, they study it more, and they say, what are the tricks? What are the things I need to master to get through this level? They, like, go online. They're very resourceful to figure out how to get to that next level. And, and so I, I think that if we could incorporate some of those approaches, whether it's hands-on experience, like if it doesn't work, then you don't quit. You, do, you, you need that fire to cook your food or, you know, I don't know if we can be building fires in our schools, but, uh, but, but I think kids love it. Kid, that's the stuff kids remember and retain, not worksheets and, and the other stuff. So thank you. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.